Hello, and welcome everyone to the Global Migration Podcast Season 2. This podcast was possible thanks to the support of UBC's Center for Migration Studies. Today, we are going to hear about stories of exile and displacement. Joining me today, Muhildin Nira Bakini and Albino Niole. Today's episode is very interesting. Personally speaking, as a former refugee to Canada, this topic is very close to my heart. And today, I'm going to host two incredible stories. We're going to hear from Mohideen about his story of fleeing Sudan through Egypt, Israel, and then eventually Canada, and the extraordinary efforts of illegal border crossing. Also joining us today, Albino Niole. He is going to talk to us about his journey from a child soldier to a settlement worker. Starting, let's hear from Muhi. Muhi is going to share with us a written piece. Muhi, before you read your piece, I want you just to, in a few words, help us imagine where you are at. I imagine um, you were already in Israel and you were talking about a certain engagement and interaction with a couple Canadians that changed your life. But how did you get there? So as Muhammad was just mentioning, I'm going to read a piece to you. And the context of this piece that I'm going to read is Tel Aviv, Israel, precisely at Levinsky Park. And also part of the context is this piece happened at a time when I got separated from my family, my wife and two daughters, because I made a cross from Egypt into Israel. So I got myself illegally smuggled into Israel. And for several months, I tried to get my family to just come to Israel to reunite with me. So at that time, they left Cairo, Egypt to Israel. And I was hoping that they would be able to join. So I was optimistic about the possibility that we would be able to reunite as a family. But unfortunately, that did not happen because they were arrested by the Egyptian border guards and they were taken to prison back in Egypt. So the piece that I'm going to read to you, it has three of us, myself and my friends, Dr. Dean and his beautiful wife, Mommy Glennie. So I'm just going to read this part to you. And before I read also, it's just worth mentioning that Dean and Glennie are Canadians who were able to visit me first in Cairo, Egypt, and then again in Tel Aviv, Israel. Dean and Glennie and I enjoyed reconnecting and met regularly after my shifts to catch up on each other's lives. We sometimes went to local restaurants or Levniski Park and shared reflections. Oblivious to what lay ahead, I enthusiastically shared my thoughts on Job's story. During the first two days of meeting with Dean and Glennie, I had thought my family was somewhere in the detention centers in Israel. Women with kids were not released unless the authorities knew beforehand where they would stay. The Bedouin I hired also kept me under the false impression that my family had successfully crossed into Israel. I kept regular contact with humanitarian organization. At our third meeting, I told Dean and Glennie that Hawaida, my wife, and the girls had not made it into Israel. Egyptian border patrol had arrested them. Now my theoretical understanding of the book of Job met my ugly reality. 
as I spoke with Dean and Glennie, I could not hold myself together. I burst into tears. They comforted, encouraged, and prayed for me. I vividly remember Glennie hugging me and singing, God will make a way when there seems to be no way, and how comforted I felt. This was a regular practice that earned her the title of mommy. As Dean and Glennie were preparing to return to Canada, Dr. Ward Wilson, their friend, arrived in Israel with his family. Dean and Glennie shared my story and expressed an interest in meeting me. Over coffee with Dr. Wilson's family, one of the most memorable conversations of my life occurred. It instilled in me the habit of seeing things not as they are, but rather what they could be. His son Andrew said, when, not if, you come to Canada, come to visit us. His wife Carmen said, do not be shy. God has put you in our path. Ask for anything. Dr. Wilson said, Canada has everything. Tell me what you need. Their words transformed my perspective. Before encountering them, scarcity was the prism through which I saw everything. Here, I met people who viewed things through a lens of abundance. Empowered by my new mindset, I put forward two requests. I want to reconnect with my family, and I want to come to Canada. He pulled out two business cards and told me to inquire about the process at the Canadian Embassy and to let him know as soon as I learned something. Dean and Glennie were going back to Egypt, and they would see if there was anything they could learn or do about Hawaii's circumstances. Due to the prolonged imprisonment of my family, I temporarily set aside my goal of immigrating to Canada. The pause that punctuated and the delayed achievement of my goal to immigrate to Canada allowed me to consciously own my goals, utilize any means available, and involve others in achieving them. Things were tough for my wife after her release from prison. Now she was free, but we were separated. In the first few days after her release, she expressed strong displeasure with my choice of crossing into Israel. I could not blame her. Spending 13 long months in a nasty Egyptian prison doesn't put one in a good humor. Fortunately, we had two conciliatory dreams still alive. Our family reunification and Canadian immigration. We both initially decided it would be more sensible and safer if I illegally crossed the border back to Egypt and started planning. However, remembering how unsuccessful male crossers were captured and treated cruelly by the Egyptian border's guards, Huayda changed her mind. She told me how those men were severely tortured and then deported to their countries of origin. Accounts from these tortured men caused Huayda to summon an act of incredible courage. I was astonished when she told me she would give the border crossing a second try. I was perplexed by my family's arrest the first time they attempted to cross the Egyptian-Israeli border. My own experience crossing into Israel in comparison to other refugees had been fraught with fewer misadventures. Besides, in Israel, I saw some families that had been successfully reunited. These two experiences made me entertain the possibility of joining my family in Egypt and recrossing back with them into Israel. Thank you so much, Mohe, for reading this heartfelt written piece that provides us a bit of a perspective on your personal experience being cruelly separated from your family. Honestly speaking, I'm, I'm listening to you reciting this and I'm thinking about my own situation with my own family. 
I remember when I was here in Canada and they were crossing the Syrian border to the Turkish land illegally. And I remember how helpless it felt to be in a place where you are relatively safe, but there is no news whatsoever if your family is still alive. Did they cross the border or not? Were they shot or not? Were they captured by somebody? Are you going to receive a call demanding ransom or what's going to happen? Now I am going to move to Albino's story. I'd like to ask Albino to share with us some of the written piece that he prepared, sharing about his experience from being a child soldier into eventually becoming a Canadian settlement worker. Albino, welcome to the show. Please go ahead. Thank you, Mohamed. I'm going to read about a piece of a story where I left my village in South Sudan. This was during the civil war between Sudan government and South Sudan rebels. For that time, the army just come and burn the villages and then shoot randomly, and then you have to just run to save your life. I was about 13 years old on February 4th, 1987, when civil war in Sudan broke me out from my home village, Mobilathon, in Akosh Payam, Twitch County. Mobilthon, where I live, was a village of nearly 300 families. Most of the buildings were traditionally huts made out of grass. The community was a peaceful one, relying on farming, cattle keeping, and fishing. When the war forced me to leave Mobilthon, I began a long journey, eventually walking 1,000 miles to the Dima training center in Ethiopia. On the way, I survived starvation, wild animal attacks and disease. My food was whatever I could find, like wild fruits, leaves, even the dry eyes of dead animals. In South Sudan, people are all accustomed to walking, but long distance walking nonstop for three months, night and day, was horrific for the young children like me. Dying in a desert is a painful and horrific way of losing someone. The boys and I walked with some other boys through a landscape was barren with only shrubs and a few acacia trees. A local community, Bor, one of the Dinka tribes in Jongle State, promised me and a group of boys upon leaving a Yagir village that bottles of water will be ready for us under the agreed upon acacia trees. But there was none. We were stuck with some other boys in the middle of two deserts, the Tingli and Ajagir, waiting for three days without any visible water. Thoughts of death filled everyone's heart because we knew these deserts had killed many South Sudanese civilians who were trying to cross to SPLA training center in Ethiopia. Human bones and skulls were scattered everywhere from those who had died of thirst. The only thought that came to everyone's mind was that death was waiting around the corner. Each one was praying in his or her own dialect, asking God for a miracle, especially to bring rain down. Luckily, God answered our prayers, and rain started to fall from what had just been cloudless sky. We got up immediately and started to collect rainwater with our containers and drink from it. We were so happy and started to walk toward Pibo Town, which was just captured from the government forces. 
some of us were singing traditional songs while walking, and the rest of us were singing a Sudan People's Liberation Army song. I sang a traditional song in the Dinka dialect called Kwe Dukosh Akweyo Dengchija. I walk night and day on the road where numerous bones of human beings scattered everywhere on the path we travel. Some of the boys were so very weakened by hunger and lack of sleep that they could not go further and sat down by the roadside to be prey for lions and other animals. I was lucky to survive this horrific journey because I was being pushed by my half-brother, Santino Nguyen. He was older than me and very tall, someone who always had a smile on his face. Albino, said Santino, I want you to be walking with me always. If you walk behind the people, lion might wrap you and take you away. Okay, you're right, my brother, I said. I will be walking in the line with you always. Walking with Santino gave me hope, and this is how I survived the tremendous walk. I really appreciate your generosity, Albino and Mohe, in sharing your stories. It is not easy to recall these horrific moments of your life. So I thank you on behalf of our listeners for your bravery in sharing your stories for your bravery in putting to paper the most horrific parts of your lives. Continuing this conversation, I'd like to go back to you, Mohi. I realize that both of you come from the same part of the world. What used to be a one country called Sudan is since 2011 is two countries, Sudan and the newly born South Sudan. So the first question that comes to my mind do you come from the same part of Sudan as Albino? Do you come also from South Sudan or do you come from the other part of Sudan? I'm interested in learning about this uh, just to put into perspective the events that drive somebody out of their home. Were you subjected to the same circumstances as Albino or did you come from another part of Sudan with a different set of challenges? If you can share some part of the early days of your story, that would be great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for the question. This is a very interesting question. Yeah, you're perfectly right. Sudan for 2011, a one country, but now it is split into two countries, South Sudan and Sudan. I am from Central Sudan, um, from a, a region called the Nuba Mountains, which is located in Central Sudan in Southern Kurdufan state. So my region, the region that I'm from, the state that I'm from, shares a border with the new state of South Sudan. Also during the, the revolution and the war against the Sudan People Liberation Movement against the Khartoum government, my people, the Nuba people were in perfect allyship with the people of South Sudan fighting against the dictatorial regime of Omar al-Bashir and the governments of Sudan before him. So the hope during the, the fight was to actually not separate the country into two, but creating a new Sudan a Sudan where all Sudanese, regardless of their ethnicity, religion, or political affiliation, can all be called Sudanese. 
Unfortunately, that did not happen because during the peace agreement that was signed in 2005, the people of South Sudan were given the right of nation to self-determination, whereby they would decide whether they want to remain in a United Sudan or separate to form an independent country. Unfortunately, the, the political leadership in my region, in the Nuba Mountains, were not given the same rights, the right of nation to self-determination. And my people also were not considered culturally as part of South Sudan, not even geographically. Though our relationship that we had with the South Sudanese was a political relationship, it did not qualify as being part of the same nation of South Sudan. So we were not given the right of, of nation to self-determination to separate with the South Sudanese or to create our own uh, country. So we were given in a state uh, something called popular consultation. So they will consult uh, the people of Nuba Mountains whether they want to remain in Sudan or they would like to have some political arrangement to coexist with what is left from Sudan. So for this reason, uh, I'm not part of the country that Albino now belongs to. But that social ties and people-to-people -people relationship is still do exist. And even especially here in Canada, Albino and myself, we serve the same people. So we are very conscious about the fact that the, the separation of political ties does not necessarily mean social and cultural severing of the relationship. So to just answer your question, uh, I lived in Nuba Mountains for one and a half year. So when I was five till six and a half years. And then my family relocated to Khartoum where I was able to attend schools in, in Khartoum in North Sudan. So uh, Albino also falls under a category of refugees who left their countries because of general conflicts. But I left the country because of uh, being a political refugee. So I was targeted as an individual, but Albino was targeted as a group. Uh, these are some nuances about our background and how we differ. Even both of us came here as resettled refugees. We belong to totally different categories of being a refugee. It's really interesting to hear more about this because basically both of you come from the same geographical region. Maybe even a few kilometers would have made you from the same country today. It's really interesting to hear this on the Global Migration Podcast. In season two, the intention is to bring lived firsthand experiences of newcomers to Canada and their journeys and their struggles throughout Back to Albino and continuing on his experience, one of the very interesting points that you raised in your written piece, Albino, is how, you know, when the shooting starts, everybody just runs and nobody knows where, but like you just run towards where everybody's running. The point is staying alive. As long as you are running, this means that you are still alive, you, you haven't been shot. After that, you shared with us about places that you arrived to where you are maybe physically away from that shooting, but still the circumstances weren't perfect. You didn't have good water, you survived the famine that was there, starvation, and you saw human remains. And that's just because you are trying to flee immediate danger, but you're still in a very hostile environment. Would you please expand on that? I mean... A lot of people think that when you are out of the danger zone, you are good, but reality, life doesn't really work that way. Refugees who flee their home end up in neighboring countries governed by geography. Just you're in this place just because it's the next place on the map. 
But what does it mean from your experience to be a displaced person away from your home, but that limbo that you live in? Please tell me more about that. Thank you, Mahmoud. I know during that time, it wasn't easy. As I said before, whenever the army came and just shoot the civilian, you just ran to save your life. You don't know where you're going. At that time, you ran as a group because we are in a Bar Ghazal. This is where I live. From Bar Ghazal, when we ran from there, we ran toward Bor. So when we ran toward that area, you don't want to go back. You just want to go ahead. So when we came, we came as a group. What happened in everybody's mind? Say, let's just go and go to the SPLA. Let's just get again and come back and defend our area, our village. This is what was in everybody's mind, especially the elders who are leading us, plus even the young boys, they just, just want to go and get something that when they come back, they will defend their village. So from Baragazal to Afanal, to cross that area, there is a desert. In that desert, there's no water. When we came, we came to Bor. In Bor, you have to just come and then they will tell you, where you're going, there's no water. There's no food to eat. When you cross that desert, that means you are lucky. Then when you cross that one, then we'll get the water on the other side. So when we came to Bor, we were told, in the middle of the desert, you'll get some water being kept by the SPLA. Then when you get that water, then you will continue to another place called Fibor. But when we came, there was nothing. There was no water at all. So we were just stuck in the middle. You can't go back and you can't go ahead. And it was like February going to March. At that time, there's no rain. That is summertime. So we were just stuck in the middle of the desert. And because we heard about these stories for those who came before, those who are going to Ethiopia, most of them died in the desert of thirst. So everybody was thinking about what happened before. So all of us were just praying in our dialect, just asking God what will happen if there's no rain. And we know there will be no rain because that is summertime. While we were praying, even the cloudless sky, that there was no even a single cloud. It just happened. It kind of, kind of a miracle. The rain started to rain from nowhere. And this is where we get up, collect the water with our containers, drink from it, and then we continue our journey. In that journey, because when you walk at night, because most of us were kids, you don't have a gun or anything to defend yourself. Even when animal come or a lion, whoever is left behind will be the prey of a lion or other animals. So it wasn't easy. It was real danger, but because there was no choice. If, if you remain in the village, the same things will keep you running again. So that's why just keep running until you go where you can get something and come back and defend yourself. So this is where we walk and then we came to the desert, we crossed the desert, and then we came to the Fibor and we continue our journey to the training center. So that journey was not easy, but we don't have choice. We have to continue our journey. I am so happy that your prayers were answered and you got some water so you can keep going, my brother. Thank you so much for sharing very generously about those years you spent on the go trying to survive from one desert to another desert, from one camp to another camp. Oh my God, I am glad you're here. <laughs> Thank you. Back to you, Mohi. I want you to continue telling us about uh, how did it unfold after you met your friends from Canada, namely Dr. Wilson, 
how did it go afterwards? And this whole thing, where did it bring you and how did that all end up? Earlier when I was answering the first question that you asked me, I said I left uh, Sudan as a political refugee, but Albino left as a, uh, a refugee from general place of conflict. That is not just simple typologies because the way you are pushed out from your country also determines how you want to live your life and how you look back at your country. So when Albino was saying he was just pushing forward with the expectation that he want to get into a place where he would feel safe, and then go back again and fight the rebels. I was I found that very courageous because when you're pushed as a part of, of a group, uh, I think you feel empowered, right? And there is a high level of rage that you experience and you want to go back again and defend the group and the all the resources and the land that they left. But for a person like me who was just pushed individually, you don't have that sense of empowerment you feel like there's nothing that you can do as an individual. So, and you tend to think of your situation and problems after you have left the country. You start to think of it on a very individual and personal levels. So that's why I found it very admirable that even when Albino was pushed, he was still thinking of wanting to go back and defend the land. I hear yeah. you. I mean, what is every refugee's dream? The dream is to go back. And that's the hope you have with you. On moment one, you are like, okay, I am out of here just so I can come back later. And, you know, speaking about how it becomes personal, I, I really hear you because like on a personal level, I was forced out of Syria because I was prosecuted in front of the court of terrorism. And it's so easy to classify someone as a, as a terrorist in a country like Syria or Sudan. And once that relationship between you and your country becomes that personal, I mean, my country classifies me as a terrorist. So I'm like, I'm out of here. It's It becomes so deeply hurting. And I hear you when you say that. And thank you so much for sharing with us very generously again. And I'm happy that you are here right now. And yeah, I'm so excited to hear about your life right now. I think I heard you started as the University of Fraser Valley, where you met Ramon, and that resulted in writing and then eventually ending up here on the podcast. And I'm curious about now. I think you are in UBC or where are you today? Tell us about it. <laughs> yes. But I still want to go back to the, the first, the initial question that you asked me when I met Dr. Ward Wilson and his family. And also when I got reconnected with my friends, Dr. Dean Twiddle and his wife, Mommy Glennie. And that I think also the, the way I interacted with them was also shaped by the way of me being a, a political refugee taking things on my own hands, uh, trying to live my life as a, on a personal and individual levels. Because being a refugee, you, you, you start to be very dependent, right? You, because everything is decided on your behalf by international organizations like the, the IOM, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. So they're basically the one who determines uh, your status as a refugee. They're the one who decides where you get resettled. They're the one who can even say you're not legally a refugee, right? So you depend on whatever they tell you. But after I was, after I got myself smuggled into Israel and interacted with Dr. Ward Wilson and his family, Dr. Dean and his family, I started to feel a sense of agency and empowerment. I started to think, oh, maybe being able to immigrate does not necessarily have to come from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Maybe through friends and uh, private sponsorship, 
on initiatives like this, when would the SID be able to articulate uh, his or her case and ultimately end up in, in a country where there is connection in terms of social connection, family and friendship and things like that. So, and that ended up being being the case. I was helped by these Canadian friends to finally, because they privately sponsored me to come to Canada. So I came to Canada, not through the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. In fact, when I left Sudan in 2004 and came to Egypt, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, they actually slowed down their settlement process for the Sudanese refugees because of the peace agreement that was going on between the rebels of South Sudan and the government of Sudan. So yeah, through Canadian connections, I was able to come to Canada. The first year I was just uh, working full-time and doing overtime because I wanted my wife to go and improve her language skills. She attended ESL classes at the Abbotsford Community Services here in Abbotsford. This is where Albino also is currently working and he was working since then. So after she finished her upgrading, she was also after community service, my wife went to uh, the University of Fraser Valley to finish her upgrading. So the first year I did not try to do anything. I just prioritized my family's well-being and survival and everything. So the next year in Canada, because I came to Canada in 2012, the next year in Canada, after my wife had uh, achieved a level of uh, proficiency in English, I started taking classes on part-time basis at the University of Fraser Valley. So I continued taking classes on part-time basis. In 2017, I was tired of taking classes on part-time basis. I went full-time and I, the first semester in 2017, I took six courses. And the second semester in 2018, I took another six courses and I was able to graduate in the summer of 2018. So I graduated at the top of my class with distinction. And I got an entrance scholarship into UBC at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. So I'm actually just a month and a half away from my graduations with a, a major in resources, governance, energy, and human security. So the future here in Canada looks optimistic for me. So I can't wait to graduate and start working as a, a policy analyst. So I'm interested, as I told you, in the intersection of resource governance, energy, and how that have impacts on human security. Congratulations on making it so far. And I am very excited for your soon to be graduation from UBC. And hopefully you will become a Canadian asset in public policy and just become an active member of society, implementing the force of good on behalf of newcomers to Canada. And I say this empowered by your own words of when you said how really the theme of being a refugee is the loss of control over your life. And once you left home, everybody's decided for you by someone. And it becomes really hard to go against that. And in your case, you still had hope because of the fact that you met some really incredible Canadians who helped you go through it. But for millions of others, there's no hope. And it's just survival mode that you are on for years and years and years and years. And your only job is to survive. And throughout the process, life becomes harder and harder. I am so happy both of you are here. And now we're going to move back to Albino to ask him the same question. What is about your life right now, Albino, after all those years 
Today, you are a Canadian settlement worker. In fact, you helped Mohi and his family in their resettlement process here in Canada. I am very proud of the fact that Canada is a place where people like you can find a place for themselves. How is life for you today, Albino? Life is good. You know, when I came in 2002, I didn't even wait like for some month to settle down. So I just came and I went to school right away to do something for schooling. I, I just came and I took exam and I did some courses, especially I did English and math. Then I want to do like grade 12. So I did some courses to graduates for doghood grade 12. And I did that. From there, then I went back again to do some courses. I was going to do business administration. Then that time I got a job at community services now called Archway Community Services. And then when I look at that one, just helping people was really good. I was doing that back in the refugee camp in Dadaf. Because that time I was helping refugees through interpretation. I helped help them fill out their forms. So what I did, I switched from business administration to social services. I did a diploma, I graduated, and I went back again to do Bachelor of Social Work, and I graduated in 2016. So before then, I went back home in 2011. I got married. Then I started process in 2016, and my wife came to Canada within three months. She came to Canada in 2016. So right now, my wife is here. I got two kids, son and a daughter. I'm working even if it's not that much. I'm surviving. It's not like back home. Even now, I'm also I'm helping people back home, sending some money to my family back home. So life is good. It is good. I'd like to thank you both again for joining us on the show. This is the Global Migration Podcast. And today, I'd like to thank Mohe and Albino for joining us. Thank you so much. This is Mohamed Saleh, and you are listening to the third episode of the Global Migration Podcast Season 2. This episode was recorded over Zoom on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. This podcast was possible thanks to the support of UBC's Center for Migration Studies. If you are interested in supporting the book project behind this podcast, you can help via the GoFundMe link in the episode description. Thanks again, everybody, and we'll meet you in the next episode.